and welcome to episode 63 of Rainy Day Storytime. I'm your host, Miss Kate, happy to be with you this Thursday, November 30th, as we continue with Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. When we left off on Tuesday, Joe and Amy had been out paying visits to neighbors. Amy had known it was her duty to go, and she was happy to do it. She dressed just right, she acted just right, she had lovely manners. Joe, however, felt like Amy was dragging her along. She was rude. She was unruly. She was making fun of people and just being the hellion that she is. These shenanigans of Joe's, however, came back to haunt her when it was revealed later that Aunt Carol, who was someone that they ran into when they were out doing their visits, was going to Europe. She was originally going to ask Joe to accompany her, but after seeing Joe's state of general discontentment, she decided that Amy would actually be the better traveling companion. And so Amy was invited to go with Aunt Carol and Flo to Europe. And that is where we are going to pick up this morning at the top of chapter 31. If you have a book, open it to follow along with me. And here we go. London. Dearest people, here I really sit at a front window in the Bath Hotel, Piccadilly. It's not a fashionable place, but Uncle stopped here years ago and won't go anywhere else. However, we don't mean to stay long, so it's no great matter. Oh, I can't begin to tell you how I enjoyed it all. I never can, so I'll only give you bits out of my notebook, for I've done nothing but sketch and scribble since I started. I sent a line from Halifax when I felt pretty miserable, but after that I got on delightfully, seldom ill, on deck all day with plenty of pleasant people to amuse me. Everyone was very kind to me, especially the officers. Don't laugh, Joe. Gentlemen really are very necessary aboard a ship to hold on to or to wait upon one, and as they have nothing to do, it's a mercy to make them useful. Otherwise, they would just smoke themselves to death, I'm afraid." Aunt and Flo were poorly all the way and liked to be left alone, so when I had done what I could for them, I went and enjoyed myself, such as walk on the deck, such sunsets, such splendid air and waves. It was almost as exciting as riding a fast horse when we went rushing on so grandly. I wish Beth could have come. It would have done her so much good. As for Joe, she would have gone up and sat on the main top jib, or whatever the high thing is called, made friends with the engineers, and tooted on the captain's speaking trumpet. She'd have been in such a state of rapture. It was all heavenly, but I was glad to see the Irish coast and found it very lovely, so green and sunny, with brown cabins here and there and ruins on some hills, and gentlemen's country seats in the valleys with deer feeding in the parks. It was early in the morning, but I didn't regret getting up to see it, for the bay was full of little boats, the shore so picturesque, and a rosy sky overhead. I shall never forget it. At Queenstown, one of my new acquaintances left us, Mr. Lennox, and when I said something about the lakes of Killarney, he sighed and sung with a look at me, Oh, have you ever heard of Kate Kinneary? She lives on the banks of Killarney. From the glance in her eye, shun danger and fly, for fatal's the glance of Kate Kearney. Wasn't that nonsensical? We only stopped at Liverpool a few hours. It's a dirty, noisy place, and I was glad to leave it. Uncle rushed out and bought a pair of dogskin gloves, some ugly thick shoes, and an umbrella, and got shaved at a la mutton chop the first thing. Then he flatters himself that he looked like a true Briton, but the first time he had the mud cleaned off his shoes, the little boot black knew that an American stood in them and said with a grin, There you are, sir. I've given them the latest Yankee shine. It amused Uncle immensely. Oh, I must tell you what that absurd Lennox did. He got his friend Ward, who came on with us, to order a bouquet for me, and the first thing I saw in my room was a lovely one with Robert Lennox's compliments on the card. Wasn't that fun, girls? I like traveling. I never shall get to London if I don't hurry. The trip was like riding through a long picture gallery full of lovely landscapes. The farmhouses were my delight, with the thatched roofs and ivy up in the eaves, latticed windows and stout women with rosy children at the doors. The very cattle looked more tranquil than ours as they stood knee-deep in clover, and the hens had contented clucks, as if they'd never got nervous like Yankee biddies. Such perfect color I never saw, the grass so green, the sky so blue, grain so yellow, woods so dark. I was in rapture all the way. So was Flo. We kept bouncing from one side to the other, trying to see everything while we were whisking along at the rate of 60 miles an hour. Aunt was tired and went to sleep, but Uncle read us his guidebook and wouldn't be astonished at anything. This is the way he went on. Amy flying up. Oh, that must be Killingworth. 
the gray place among the trees flo darting to my window how sweet we must go there sometime won't we pa uncle calmly admiring his boots no my dear not unless you want beer that's a brewery a pause and then flo cried out bless me there's a gallows and a man going up where where shrieks amy staring at the two tall posts with the cross beam and some dangling chains a colliery remarks uncle with a twinkle in his eye here's a lovely flock of lambs all lying down says amy see pa aren't they pretty added flo sentimentally geese young ladies returns uncle in a tone that keeps us quiet till flo settles down to enjoy the flirtations of captain cavendish and i have the scenery all to myself of course it rained when we got to london and there was nothing to be seen but fog and umbrellas we rested unpacked and shopped a little between the showers aunt mary got me some new things for i came off in such a hurry i wasn't half ready a sweet white hat a blue feather a distracting muslin to match and the loveliest mantle you ever saw shopping in regent street is perfectly splendid things seem so cheap nice ribbons only sixpence a yard i laid on a stock but i shall get my gloves in paris don't that sound sort of elegant and rich flo and i for the fun of it ordered a handsome cab while aunt and uncle went out and went for a drive though we learned afterwards that it wasn't the thing for young ladies to ride in alone it was so droll for when we were shut up in the wooden apron the man drove so fast that flo was frightened and told me to stop him but he was up and outside behind somewhere and i couldn't get at him he didn't hear me call nor see me flap my parasol in front and there we were quite helpless rattling away and whirling round corners at the breakneck pace at last in my despair i saw a little door in the roof and on poking it open a red eye appeared and a beery voice said now then mom i gave my order as soberly as i could and slamming down the door with an ay ay mom the man made his horse walk as if going to a funeral i poked again and said a little faster then off he went helter skelter as before and we resigned ourselves to our fate Today was fair, and we went to Hyde Park, close by, for we are more aristocratic than we look. The Duke of Devonshire lives near. I often see his footmen lounging at the back gate, and the Duke of Wellington's house is not far off. Such sights as I saw, my dear. It was as good as punch, for there were fat dowagers rolling about in their red and yellow coaches with gorgeous jiminieses and silk stockings and velvet coats up behind powdered coachmen in front smart maids with the rosiest children i ever saw handsome girls looking half asleep dandies in queer english hats and lavender kids lounging about and tall soldiers in short red jackets and muffin caps stuck on the side looking so funny i longed to sketch them rotten row means rot de roy or the king's way but it's now it's more like a riding school than anything else the horses are splendid and the men especially the grooms ride well but the women are stiff and bounce which isn't according to our rules i long to show them a tearing american gallop for they trotted solemnly up and down in their scant habits and their high hats looking like women in a toy's noah's ark every one of them rides old men stout ladies little children and young folks do a deal of flirting here i saw a pair exchange rosebuds for it's the thing to wear in one's buttonhole and i thought it was rather a nice little idea in the p m to westminster abbey but don't expect me to describe it that's impossible so i'll only say it was sublime this evening we are going to see fletcher which will be an appropriate end to the happiest day of my life midnight it's very late but i can't keep my letter to go until the morning without telling you what happened last evening who do you think came in while we were at tea laurie's english friends fred and frank vaughn i was so surprised for i shouldn't have known them but for the cards both are tall fellows with whiskers fred handsome in the english style and frank much better for he only limps slightly and uses no crutches they had heard from laurie where we were to be and came to ask us to their house but uncle won't go so we shall return the call and see them as we can they went to the theater with us and did have such a good time for frank devoted himself to flo and fred and i talked over past present and future fun as if we'd known each other all our lives tell beth frank asked for her and was sorry to hear of her ill health fred laughed when i spoke of joe and sent his respectful compliments to the big hat neither of them had forgotten camp lawrence or the fun we had there what ages ago it seems doesn't it aunt is tapping on the wall for the third time so i must stop i really feel like a dissipated london fine lady writing here so late with my room full of pretty things and my head a jumble of parks theater new gowns and gallant creatures who say ah and twirl their blonde mustaches with true english lordliness i long to see you all and in spite of my nonsense am as ever your loving amy 
Paris. Dear girls, in my last, I told you about our London visit, how kind the Vaughns were, and what pleasant parties they made for us. I enjoyed the trips to the Hampton Court and Kensington Museum more than anything else, for at Hampton I saw Raphael's cartoons, and at the museum, rooms full of pictures by Turner, Lawrence, Reynolds, and Hogarth, and other great creatures. The day in Richmond Park was charming, for we had a regular English picnic, and I had more splendid oaks and groups of deer than I could copy. Also heard a nightingale and saw larks go up. We did London to our heart's content, thanks to Fred and Frank, and were sorry to go away, for though English people are slow to take you in, once they've made up their minds to do it, they cannot be outdone in hospitality, I think. The Vaughns hope to meet us in Rome next winter, and I shall be dreadfully disappointed if they don't, for Grace and I are great friends, and the boys are very nice fellows, especially Fred. Well, we were hardly settled here when he turned up again, saying he had come for a holiday and was going to Switzerland. Aunt looked sober at first, but he was so cool about it that she couldn't say a word, and now we get on nicely and are very glad he came, for he speaks French like a native, and I don't know what we should do without him. Uncle don't know ten words and insist on talking English very loud, as if that would make people understand him. Aunt's pronunciation is old-fashioned, and Flo and I, though we were flattered ourselves that we knew a good deal, find we don't, and are very grateful to have Fred do the parlay vooing, as Uncle calls it. Such delightful times we're having, sightseeing from morning till night, stopping for nice lunches in gay cafes, and meeting with all sorts of droll adventures. Rainy days I spend in the Louvre, reveling in pictures. Joe would turn her naughty nose up at some of the finest, because she has no soul for art. But I have, and I'm cultivating eye and taste as fast as I can. She would like the relics of great people better, for I've seen her Napoleon's cocked hat and gray coat, his baby cradle, and his old toothbrush, also Marie Antoinette's little shoe and the ring of St. Denis, Charlemagne's sword, and many other interesting things. I'll talk for hours about them when I come home, but I haven't time to write. The Palace Royale is a heavenly place, so full of bijouterie and lovely things that I'm nearly distracted because I can't buy them. Fred wanted to get me some, but of course I didn't allow it. Then the Bois and the Champs-Élysées are très magnifique. I've seen the imperial family several times. The emperor is an ugly, hard-looking man, the empress pale and pretty, but dressed in horrid taste, I thought. Purple dress, green hat, yellow gloves, little Nap is a handsome boy who sits chatting to his tutor and kisses his hand to people as he passes in his four-horse Rocher with the postilions in red satin jackets and mounted guard before and behind. We often walk in the Tuileries gardens, for they are lovely, though the antique Luxembourg gardens suit me better. Père Lachaise is very curious, for many of the tombs are like small rooms, and looking in one sees a table with images or pictures of the dead and chairs for mourners to sit in when they come to lament. It's so Frenchy, n'est-ce pas? Our rooms are on the Rue de Rivoli, and sitting in the balcony, we look up and down the long, brilliant street. It is so pleasant that we spend our evenings talking there when we're too tired with our day's work to go out. Fred is very entertaining and is altogether the most agreeable young man I have ever known, except Laurie, whose manners are more charming. I wish Fred was dark, for I don't fancy light men. However, the Vaughns are very rich and come to an, from an excellent family, so I won't find fault with their yellow hair as my own is yellower. Next week we are off to Germany and Switzerland, and as we tr shall travel fast, I shall only be able to give you hasty letters. I keep my diary and try to remember correctly and describe clearly all that I see and admire as Father advised. It's good practice for me, and with my sketchbook it will give you a better idea of my tour than these scribbles. Adieu, I embrace you tenderly. Votre ami. Hildenburg my dear Mama, having a quiet hour before we leave for Bern, I'm trying to tell you what has happened, for some of it is very important, as you will see. The sail up the Rhine was perfect, and I just sat and enjoyed it with all my might. Give Father's old guidebooks and read about it. I haven't words beautiful enough to describe it. At Koblenz, we had a lovely time for some students from Bonn, with whom Fred got acquainted on the boat, gave us a serenade. It was a moonlight night, and about one o'clock, Flo and I were waked by the most delicious music under our windows. We flew up and hid behind the curtains, but sly peeps showed us Fred and the students singing away down below. It was the most romantic thing I ever saw, the river, the bridge of boats, and the great fortress opposite. Moonlight everywhere, and music fit to melt the heart of stone. When they were done, we threw down some flowers, and I saw them scramble for them, kiss 
their hands to the invisible ladies and go laughing away to smoke or drink beer, I suppose. The next morning, Fred showed me one of the crumpled flowers in his vest pocket and looked very sentimental. I laughed at him and said I didn't throw it, but Flo, which seemed to disgust him, for he tossed it out the window and turned sensible again. I'm afraid I'm going to have trouble with that boy. It begins to look like it. The baths at Nassau were very gay. So was Baden-Baden, where Fred lost some money, and I scolded him. He needs someone to look after him when Frank is not with him. Kate said once she hoped he'd marry soon, and I quite agree with her that that would be well for him. Frankfurt was delightful. I saw Goethe's house and Schiller's statue and Daneker's famous irony. It was very lovely, but I should have enjoyed it more if I had known the story better. I didn't like to ask, as everyone knew or pretended they did. I wish Joe would tell me about it. I ought to have read more, for I find I don't know anything, and it mortifies me. Now comes the serious part, for it happened here, and Fred is just gone. He's been so kind and jolly that we all got quite fond of him. I never thought of anything but traveling friendship till the serenade night. Since then, I've begun to feel that the moonlit walks and the balcony talks and the daily adventures were something more to him than fun. I haven't flirted, Mother, truly, but remembered what you said to me, and I have done my very best. I can't help it if people like me. I don't try to make them, and it worries me if I don't care for them, though Joe says I haven't got any heart. Now I know Mother will shake her head, and the girls will say, Oh, the mercenary little wrench. But I've made up my mind, and if Fred asks me, I shall accept him, though I'm not madly in love. I like him, and we get on comfortably together. He's handsome and young and clever enough and very rich, ever so much richer than the Lawrences. I don't think his family would object, and I should be very happy, for they are all so kind and well-bred, generous people, and they like me. Fred, as the eldest twin, will have the estate, I suppose, and such a splendid one it is. A city house in a fashionable street, not so showy as our big houses, but twice as comfortable and full of solid luxury, such as the English people believe in. I like it, for it's genuine. I've seen the plate and the family jewels and the old servants and pictures of the country place with its park, a great house, lovely grounds, and fine horses. Oh, it would be all I should ask, and I'd rather have it than any title such as girls snap up so readily and find nothing behind. I may be mercenary, but I hate poverty, and I don't mean to bear it a minute longer than I can help. One of us must marry well. Meg didn't, Joe won't, Beth can't yet, so I shall, and make everything cozy all round. I wouldn't marry a man I hated or despised, you may be sure of that, and though Fred is not so much my model hero, he does very well, and in time I should get fond enough of him if he was very fond of me, and let me do just as I liked. So I've been turning the matter over in my mind the last week, for it was impossible to help seeing that Fred liked me. He said nothing, but little things showed it. He never goes with Flo, always gets on my side of the carriage, table, or promenade, looks sentimental when we are alone, and frowns at anyone else who ventures to speak to me. Yesterday at dinner, when an Austrian officer stared at us and then said something to his friend, a rakish-looking baron, about Ein Wunderschön Blanchen, Fred looked as fierce as a lion and cut his meat so savagely it nearly flew off his plate. He isn't one of the cool, stiff Englishmen, but is rather peppery, for he has Scotch blood in him, as one might guess from his bonny blue eyes. Well, last evening we went up to the castle about sunset, at least all of us but Fred, who was to meet us there after going to the Poste Restante for letters. We had a charming time poking about the ruins. The vaults were the monster ton is, and the beautiful gardens made by the elector long ago for his English wife. I liked the great terrace best, for the view was divine, so while the rest went to see the rooms inside, I sat there trying to sketch the grey stone lion's head on the wall with the scarlet woodbine sprays hanging round it. I felt as if I got into a romance sitting there watching the neck car rolling through the valley, listening to the music of the Austrian band below, and waiting for my lover like a real storybook girl. I had a feeling that something was going to happen, and I was ready for it. I didn't feel blushy or quaky, but quite cool and only a little excited. By and by I heard Fred's voice, and then he came hurrying through the great arch to find me. He looked so troubled that I forgot all about myself and asked what the matter was. He said he'd just gotten a letter begging him to come home, for Frank was very ill, so he was going at once on the night train and had only time to say goodbye. I was very sorry for him and disappointed for myself, but only for a minute, because he said as he shook hands and said it in a way that I could not mistake, I shall soon come back. You won't forget me, Amy. 
I didn't promise, but I looked at him, and he seemed satisfied, and there was not time for anything but messages and goodbyes, for he was off in an hour, and we all missed him very much. I know he wanted to speak, but I think from something he once hinted that he had promised his father not to do anything of the sort yet a while, for he is a rash boy, and the old gentleman dreads a foreign daughter-in-law. We shall soon meet in Rome, and then, if I don't change my mind, I'll say yes, thank you, when he says, will you please? course this is all very private but i wish you to know what is going on don't be anxious about me remember i am your prudent amy and sure i will do nothing rashly send me as much advice as you like i'll use it if i can i wish i could see you for a good talk marmy love and trust me ever your amy chapter 32 joe i'm anxious about beth why mother she has seemed unusually well since the babies came it's not her health that troubles me now, it's her spirits. I'm sure there's something on her mind, and I want you to, to discover what it is. What makes you think so, mother? She sits alone a good deal and doesn't talk to her father as much as she used to. I found her crying over the babies the other day, and when she sings, the songs are always sad ones, and now I see a look in her face that I don't understand. This isn't like Beth, and it worries me. Have you asked her about it? I've tried once or twice, but she either evades my questions or looks so distressed that I stop. I never force my children's confidence, and I seldom have to wait for it long. Mrs. March glanced at Joe as she spoke, but the face opposite seemed unconscious of any secret disquietude but Beth's. And after sewing thoughtfully for a minute, Joe said, I think she's growing up, and so begins to dream dreams and have hopes and fears and fidgets without knowing why or being able to explain them. Why, mother, Beth's 18, but we don't realize it and treat her like a child, forgetting she's a woman. So she is. Dear heart, how fast you do grow up, returned mother with a sigh and a smile. Can't be helped, Marmy, so you must resign yourself to all sorts of worries and let your birds hop out of the nest one by one. I promise never to hop very far if that's a comfort to you. It is a great comfort, Joe. I always feel strong when you are at home, now that Meg's gone. Beth is too feeble and Amy is too young to depend upon, but when the tug comes, you are always ready. Why, you know I don't mind hard jobs much, and there's always to be one scrub in the family. Amy is splendid in fine works, and I'm not, but I feel in my element when all the carpets are to be taken up and ha or half the family to fall sick at once. Amy is distinguishing herself abroad, but if anything's admits at home, I'm your man. I'll leave Beth in your hands then, for she will open her tender little heart to you, Joe, sooner than to anyone else. Be very kind and don't let her think that anyone watches or talks about her. If she would only get quite strong and cheerful again, I shouldn't have a wish in the world. Happy woman, I've got heaps. My dear, what are they? I'll settle Bethy's troubles and then I'll tell you mine. They're not very wearing, so they'll keep. And Joe stitched away with the wise nod which sent her mother's heart at rest about her for the present at least. While apparently absorbed in her own affairs, Joe watched Beth, and after many conflicting conjectures, finally settled upon one which seemed to explain the change in her. A slight incident gave Joe a clue to the mystery, she thought, and the lively, fancy-loving heart did the rest. She was affecting to write busily one Saturday afternoon when she and Beth were alone together, yet as she scribbled, she kept her eye on her sister, who seemed unusually quiet. Sitting at the window, Beth's work often dropped into her lap, and she leaned her head upon her hand in a dejected attitude while her eyes rested on the dull autumnal landscape. Suddenly, someone passed below, whistling like an operatic blackbird, and a voice called out, All serene, coming in tonight. Beth started, leaned forward, smiled, and nodded, watched the passerby till his quick tramp died away, and then said softly, as if to herself, How strong and well and happy that dear boy looks. Hmm, said Joe, still intent upon her sister's face, and the bright color faded as quickly as it came, and the smile vanished, and presently a tear lay shining on the window ledge. Beth whisked off and glanced apprehensively at Joe, but she was scratching away at the tremendous rate, apparently engrossed in Olympia's oath. The instant Beth turned, Joe began to watch her again, saw Beth's hand go quietly to her eyes more than once, and her half-averted face read a tender sorrow that made her own eyes fill. Fearing to betray herself, she slipped away, murmuring something about needing more paper. Mercy on me, Beth loves Lori, she said, sitting down in her own room, pale with shock of the discovery which she believed she had just made. I never dreamt of such a thing. What will Mother say? I wonder if he... There Joe stopped and turned scarlet with a sudden thought. 
if he shouldn't love back again, how dreadful it would be. He must. I'll make him. And she shook her head threateningly at the picture of the mischievous boy laughing at her from the wall. Oh, dear, we are growing up with a vengeance. Here's Meg married and a ma, Amy flourishing in Paris, and Beth in love. I'm the only one that has sense enough to keep out of mischief. Joe thought intently for a moment with her eyes fixed on the picture, and then she smoothed out her wrinkled forehead and said with a decided nod at the face opposite, No, thank you, sir. You're very charming, but you've no more stability than a weathercock, so you needn't write touching notes and smile in that insinuating way, for it won't do a bit of good and I won't have it. Then she sighed and fell into a reverie from which she did not wake till early in the twilight it sent her down for new observations which only confirmed her suspicion. Though Laurie flirted with Amy and joked with Joe, his manner to Beth was always particularly kind and gentle, but so was everybody else's. Therefore, no one thought of imagining that he cared more for her than for others. Indeed, a general impression had prevailed in the family of late that our boy was getting fonder than ever of Joe, who, however, wouldn't hear a word upon the subject and scolded violently if anyone dared to suggest it. If they had known the various tender passages of the year, or rather attempts at tender passages which had been nipped in the bud, they would have had an immense satisfaction of saying, I told you so. But Joe hated philandering and wouldn't allow it, always having a joke or a smile ready at the least sign of impending danger. When Lloyd first went to college, he fell in love about once a month. But these small flames were as brief as ardent, did no damage, and much amused Joe, who took great interest in the alternations of hope, despair, and resignation which were confided to her in their weekly conferences. But there came a time when Laurie ceased to worship at many shrines, hinted darkly at one all-absorbing passion, and indulged occasionally in baronic fits of gloom. Then he avoided the tender subject altogether, wrote philosophical notes to Joe, turned studious, and gave out that he was going to dig, intending to graduate in a blaze of glory. This suited the young lady better than twilight confidences, tender pressures of the hand, and eloquent glances of the eye. For with Joe, brain developed earlier than heart, and she preferred imaginary heroes to real ones, because when tired of them, the former could be shut up in the tin kitchen till called for, and the latter were less manageable. Things were in this state when the grand discovery was made, and Joe watched Laurie that night as she had never done before. If she had not got the idea into her head, she would have seen nothing unusual in the fact that Beth was very quiet and Laurie very kind to her. But having given the rein to her lively fancy, it galloped away with her at a great pace, and common sense being rather weakened by a long course of romance writing did not come to the rescue. As usual, Beth lay on the sofa, and Laurie sat in the low chair close by, amusing her with all sorts of gossip, for she depended on her weekly spin, and he never disappointed her. But that evening, Joe fancied that Beth's eyes rested on the lively dark face beside her with peculiar pleasure, and that she listened with intense interest to the accounts of some exciting cricket match. Through the phases, caught off a tice, stumped off his ground, and the leg hit for three, were as intelligible to her as Sanskrit. She also fancied, having set her heart upon seeing it, that she saw a certain increase of gentleness in Laurie's manner, that he dropped his voice now and then, laughed less than usual, was a little absent-minded, and settled the afghan over Beth's feet with such an assiduity that he almost was tender. Who knows? Stranger things have happened, thought Joe, as she fussed about the room. She will make quite an angel of him, and he will make life delightfully easy and pleasant for the dear if they only love each other. I don't see how he can help it, and I do believe that he would if the rest of us were out of the way. As everyone was out of the way but herself, Joe began to feel she ought to dispose of herself with all speed. But where should she go? And burning to lay herself upon the shrine of sisterly devotion, she sat down to settle the point. Now the old sofa was a regular patriarch of a sofa long, broad, well-cushioned, and low, a trifle shabby as well it might be, for the girls had slept and sprawled on it as babies, fished over the back, rode on the arms, and had menandres under it as children, and rested their tired heads, dreamed dreams, and listened to talk on it as young women. They all loved it, for it was a family refuge, and one corner had always been Joe's favorite lounging place. Among the many pillows that adorned the veritable couch, one hard round covered with prickly horse hair and furnished with knobby button at each end, this repulsive pillow was her especial property, being used as a weapon of defense, a barricade, or a stern preventative for too much slumber. Lori knew this pillow well and had cause to regard it with deep aversion, having been unmercifully pummeled with it for in former days when romping was allowed, and now frequently debarred by it from taking the seat he most coveted next to Joe in the sofa corner. 
If the sausage, as they called it, stood on end, it was a sign that he might approach and repose. But if it was laid flat across the sofa, woe to the man, woman, or child who dared disturb it. That evening, Joe forgot to barricade her corner and had not been in her seat more than five minutes before a massive form appeared beside her with both arms spread over the sofa back, both long legs stretched out before him. Laurie exclaimed with a sigh of satisfaction, Now this is filling at the price. No slang, snapped Joe, slamming down the pillow, but it was too late. There was no room for it, and coasting onto the floor, it disappeared in the most mysterious manner. Come, Joe, don't be thorny. After studying himself to a skeleton all week, a fellow deserves petting and ought to get it. Beth will pet you. I'm busy. No, she's not to be bothered with me, but you like that sort of thing unless you've suddenly lost your taste for it, have you? Do you hate your boy and want to fire pillows at him? Anything more wheedlesome than that touching appeal was seldom seen, but Joe quenched her boy by turning on him with a stern query. How many bouquets have you sent Miss Randall this week? Not one, upon my word. She's engaged now, then. I'm glad of it. That's one of your foolish extravagances, sending flowers and things to girls whom you don't care two pens, continued Joe reprovingly. Sensible girls for whom I do care whole papers of pens won't let me send them flowers and things. So what can I do? My feelings must have a went. Mother doesn't approve of flirting, even in fun. You do flirt desperately, Teddy. I'd give anything if I could answer, so do you. As I can't, I'll merely say that I don't see any harm in pleasant little games if all parties understand that it's only play. Well, it does look pleasant, but I can't learn how it is done. I've tried, because one feels awkward in company not to do as everybody else is doing, but I don't seem to get on, said Joe, forgetting to play mentor. Take lessons from Amy. She's a regular talent for it. Yes, she does it very prettily and never seems to go too far. I suppose it's natural to some people to please without trying and others to always say and do the wrong thing in the wrong place. I'm glad you can't flirt. It's really refreshing to see a sensible, straightforward girl who can be jolly and kind without making a fool of herself. But between ourselves, Joe, some of the girls I know really do go on at such a rate I'm ashamed for them. They don't mean any harm, I'm sure, but if they knew how we fellows talked about them afterwards, they'd mend their ways, I fancy. They do the same, and as their tongues are the sharpest, you fellows get the worst of it, for you are as silly as they, every bit. If you behaved properly, then they would, but knowing you like their nonsense, they keep it up, and then you blame them. Much you know about it, ma'am, said Laurie in a superior tone. We don't like romps and flirts, though we may act like we did sometimes. The pretty, modest girls are never talked about, except respectfully among the gentlemen. Bless your innocent soul, if you could be in my place for a month, you'd see things that would astonish you a trifle. Upon my word, when I see one of those harem-scarum girls, I always want to say with our friend Cock Robin, Out upon you, fie upon you, bold-faced jig. It was impossible to help laughing at the funny conflict between Laurie's chivalrous reluctance to speak ill of womankind and his very natural dislike of the unfeminine folly of which fashionable society showed him many samples. Joe knew that young Lawrence was regarded as a most eligible parte by worldly mamas, was much smiled upon by their daughters, and flattered enough by ladies of all ages to make a coxum of him, so she watched him rather jealously, fearing that he would be spoilt, and rejoiced more than she confessed to find that he still believed in modest girls. Returning suddenly to her admonitory tone, she said, dropping her voice, If you must have a wint, Teddy, go and devote yourself to one of those pretty modest girls whom you respect and do not waste your time with the silly ones. You really advise it, said Laurie, looking at her with an odd mixture of anxiety and merriment on his face. Yes, I do, but you'd better wait till you are through college on the whole and be fitting yourself for the place meantime. You're not half good enough for, well, whoever the modest girl may be, and Joe looked a little queer likewise, for the name had almost escaped her. That I'm not, acquiesced Laurie, with an expression of humility quite new to him, as he dropped his eyes and absently wound Joe's apron tassel round his finger. Mercy on us, this will never do, thought Joe, adding aloud. Go and sing for me, I'm dying for some music, and I always like yours. I'd rather stay here and thank you. Well, you can't. There isn't room. Go and make yourself useful, since you're too big to be ornamental. I thought you hated to be tied to a woman's apron strings, retorted Joe, quoting certain rebellious words of his own. Ah, that depends on who wears the apron, said Laurie, and he gave an audacious tweak of the tassel. Are you going, demanded Joe, diving for the pillow. He fled at once, and the minute it was well, up with the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee, she slipped away to return no more till the young gentleman had departed for his high dungeon. 
Joe lay long awake that night and was just dropping off when the sound of a stifled sob made her fly to Beth's bedside with an anxious inquiry. What is it, dear? I thought you were asleep, sobbed Beth. Is it that old pain, my precious? No, it's a new one, but I can't bear it, said Beth, and she tried to check the tears. Tell me about it and let me cure it as I often did the other. You can't. There's no cure. There... There, Beth's voice gave way, and clinging to her sister, she cried so despairingly that Joe was frightened. Where is it? Shall I call mother? Beth did not answer the first question, but in the dark, one hand went involuntarily to her heart, as if the pain were there. With the other, she held Joe fast, whispering eagerly, No, no, don't call her. Don't tell her. I shall be better soon. Lie down here and, and pour my head. I'll be quiet and go to sleep. Indeed, I will. Joe obeyed, but as... Her hand went softly to and fro across Beth's hot forehead and wet eyelids. Her heart was suddenly very full, and she longed to speak. But young as she was, Joe had learned that hearts, like flowers, cannot be rudely handled, but must open naturally. So, though she believed she knew the cause of Beth's new pain, she only said in her tenderest tone, Does anything trouble you, dearie? Yes, Joe, after a long pause. Wouldn't it be a comfort to tell me what it is? Not now, not yet. Then I won't ask, but remember, Bethy, that Mother and Joe are always glad to hear and help you if they can. I know. I'll tell you by and by. Is the pain better now? Oh, yes, much better. You are so comfortable, Joe. Go to sleep, dear. I'll stay with you. So cheek to cheek they fell asleep, and on the morrow Beth seemed quite herself again. For at eighteen neither heads nor hearts ache long, and a loving word can medicine most ills. But Joe made up her mind, and after pondering over a project for days, she confided it to her mother. You asked me the other day what my wishes were. I'll tell you one of them, Marmy, she began as she sat alone together. I want to go away somewhere this winter for a change. Why, Joe, said mother, looking up quickly as if the word suggested a double meaning. With her eyes on her work, Joe answered soberly, I want something new. I feel restless and anxious to be seeing and doing and learning more than I am. I broke too much over my own small affairs, and I need stirring up. So, as I can be spared this winter, I'd like to hop a little way and try my wings. Where will you hop? To New York. I had a bright idea yesterday, and this is it. You know Mrs. Kirky wrote you for some respectable young person to teach her children, and so? It's rather hard to find just the thing, but I think I should suit if I tried. My dear, go out to service in that great boarding house? And Mrs. March looked surprised, but not displeased. It's not exactly going out to service, for Miss Kirky is your friend, the kindest soul that ever lived, and would make things pleasant for me, I know. Her family is separate from the rest, and no one knows me there. I don't care if they do. It's honest work, and I'm not ashamed of it. Nor I, but your writing. All the better for the change. I shall see and hear new things, get new ideas, and even if I haven't much time there, I shall bring home quantities of material for my rubbish. I have no doubt of it, but are these your only reasons for this sudden fancy? No, mother. May I know the others? Joe looked up and Joe looked down and then slowly with sudden color in her cheeks. It may be vain and wrong to say, but I'm afraid Laurie is getting too fond of me. Then you don't care for him the way it is evident he begins to care for you? And Miss March looked anxious as she put the question. Mercy, no. I love the dear boy, as I always have, and I am immensely proud of him. But as for anything more, it's out of the question. I'm glad of that, Joe. Why, please? Because, dear, I don't think you're suited to one another. As friends, you are very happy and your frequent quarrels soon blown over. But I fear that you would both rebel if you were mated for life. You are too much alike and too fond of freedom, not to mention hot tempers and strong wills, to get on happily together in a relation which needs infinite patience and forbearance as well as love. That's just the feeling I had, though I couldn't express it. I'm glad you think he's only beginning to care for me. It would trouble me sadly to make him unhappy, for I couldn't fall in love with the dear old fellow merely out of gratitude, could I? You're sure of his feelings for you? The color deepened in Joe's cheeks as she answered with a look of mingled pleasure, pride, and pain which young girls wear when speaking of first lovers. I'm afraid it's so, mother. He hasn't said anything, but he looks a great deal. I think I had better go away before it comes to anything. I agree with you, and if it can be managed, you shall go. Joe looked relieved, and after a pause said, smiling, How Mrs. Moffat would wonder at your management if she knew, and how she will rejoice that Annie still may hope. 
Ah, Joe, mothers may differ in their management, but the hope is the same in all still. The desire to see their children happy. Meg is so, and I am content with her success. You I leave to enjoy your liberty till you tire of it, for only then will you find that there is something sweeter. Amy is my chief care now, but her good sense will help her. For Beth I indulge no hopes except that she may be well. By the way, she seems brighter this last day or two. Have you spoken to her? Yes, she owned that she had trouble and promised to tell me by and by. I said no more, for I think I know it, and Joe told her little story. Mrs. March shook her head and did not take so romantic a view of the case, but looked grave and repeated her opinion that for Lori's sake, Joe should go away for a time. Let us say nothing about it to him till the plan is settled. Then I'll run away before he can collect his wits and be tragical. Beth must think I'm going to please myself as I am, for I can't talk about Lori to her, but she can pet and comfort him after I'm gone, and so cure him of his romantic notion. He's been through so many little trials of the sort he's used to it, and will soon get over his love lorenty. Jo spoke hopefully, but could not rid herself of the foreboding fear that this little trial would be harder than the others, and that Laurie would not get over his love lorenty as easy as heretofore. The plan was talked over in a family council and agreed upon, for Mrs. Kirky gladly accepted Joe and promised to make a pleasant home for her. The teacher would render her independent, and such leisure she got might be made profitable by writing, while the new scenes in society would be both useful and agreeable. Joe liked this prospect and was eager to be gone, for the home nest was growing too narrow for her restless nature and adventurous spirit. When all was settled, with fear and trembling, she told Laurie, but to her surprise he took it very quietly. He had been graver than usual of late, but very pleasant, and when jokingly accused of turning over a new leaf, he answered soberly, So I am, and I mean this one shall stay turned. Joe was very much relieved that one of his virtuous fits should come on just then, and made her preparations with a lightened heart, for Beth seemed more cheerful and hoped that she was doing the best for all. One thing I leave to your especial care, she said the night before she left. You mean your papers, asked Beth. No, my boy, be very good to him, won't you? Of course I will, but I can't fill your place and he'll miss you sadly. It won't hurt him, so remember, I leave him in your charge to plague, pet, and keep in order. I'll do my best for your sake, promised Beth, wondering why Joe looked at her so queerly. When Laurie said goodbye, he whispered significantly, It won't do a bit of good, Joe. My eye is on you. So mind what you do, or I'll come and bring you home. Chapter 33 New York, November Dear Marmy and Beth, I am going to write you a regular volume, for I have lots to tell, though I am not a fine young lady traveling on the continent. When I lost sight of father's dear old face, I felt a trifle blue and might have shed a brimy drop or two if an Irish lady with four small children, all crying more or less, hadn't diverted my mind, for I amused myself by dropping gingerbread nuts over the seat every time they opened their mouths to roar. Soon the sun came out, and taking it as a good omen, I cleared up likewise and enjoyed my journey with all my heart. Mrs. Kirky welcomed me so kindly, I felt at home at once, even in that big house full of strangers. She gave me a funny little sky parlor, all she had, but there was a stove in it and a nice table in the sunny window so I can sit here and write whenever I like. A fine view and a church tower opposite atoned for many stairs and took a fancy to my den on the spot. The nursery where I am to teach and sew is a pleasant room next to Miss Kirky's private parlor, and the two little girls are pretty children, rather spoiled, I guess, but they took to me after telling them the seven bad pigs, and I've no doubt I shall make a model governess. I am to have my meals with the children if I prefer it to the great table, and for the present I do, for I am bashful, though no one will believe it. Now, my dear, make yourself at home, and said Miss Kay in her motherly way. I'm on the drive from morning till night, as you may suppose, with such a family, but a great anxiety will be off my mind if I know the children are safe with you. My rooms are always open to you, and your own shall be as comfortable as I can make it. There are some pleasant people in the house if you feel sociable, and your evenings are always free. Come to me if anything goes wrong, and be as happy as you can. There's the tea bell. I must run and change my cap, and off she bustled, leaving me to settle myself in my new nest. As I went down the stairs, soon after, I saw something I liked. The flights were very long in this tall house, and as I stood waiting at the head of the third one for a little servant girl to lumber up, I saw a queer-looking man come along behind her, take the heavy hod of coal out of her hand, and carry it all the way up, put it down at the door nearby, and walk away, saying with a kind nod and a foreign accent, It goes better so. The little back is too young to half such heaviness. 
Wasn't that good of him? I like such things, for his father says trifles show character. When I mentioned it to Miss Kay that evening, she laughed and said, That must have been Professor Bear. He's always doing things of that sort. Mrs. Kay told me he was from Berlin, very learned and good, but poor as a church mouse, and gives lessons to support himself and two little orphan nephews whom he is educating here, according to the wishes of his sister, who married an American. Not a very romantic story, but it interested me, and I'm glad to hear that Miss Kay lends him her parlor for some of his scholars. There's a glass door between it and the nursery, and I mean to peep at him, and then I'll tell you how he looks. He's almost forty, so it's no harm, Marmy. After tea and a go-to-bed romp with the little girls, I attacked the big work basket and had a quiet evening chatting with my new friend. I shall keep a journal letter and send it once a week, so good night and more tomorrow. Tuesday evening. I had a lively time in my seminary this morning, for the children acted like Sancho, and one time I really thought I should shake them all around. Some good angel inspired me to try gymnastics, and I kept it up till they were glad to sit down and keep still. After luncheon, the girl took them out for a walk, and I went to my needlework like a little Mabel with a willing mind. I was thinking my stars that I'd learned to make some nice buttonholes when the parlor door opened and shut, and someone began to hum. Kinst du das Land? like a bumblebee. It was dreadfully improper, I know, but I couldn't resist the temptation, and lifting one end of the curtain before the glass door, I peeped in. Professor Bear was there, and while he arranged his books, I took a good look at him. A regular German, rather stout, with brown hair tumbled all over his head, a bushy beard, a droll nose, the kindest eyes I ever saw, and a splendid big voice that does one's ears good after our sharp or slipshod American gavel. His clothes were rusty, his hands were large, and he hadn't really handsome features in his face except his beautiful teeth. Yet I liked him, for he had a fine head, his linen was spandy nice, and he looked like a gentleman, though two buttons were off his coat, and there was a patch on one shoe. He looked sober in spite of his humming, till he went to the window and turned the Cynthia bulbs towards the sun and stroked the cat, who received him like an old friend. Then he smiled, and when a tap at the door came, he called out in a loud, brisk tone, Herein! I was just going to run when I caught sight of a morsel of a child carrying a big book and stopped to see what was going on. Me once my bear, said the mite, slamming down her book and running to meet him. Thou shall have thy bear. Come then and take a good hug from him, my Tina, said the professor, catching her up with a high laugh and holding her so high over his head that she had to stoop her little face to kiss him. Now me must tutty my lesson, went on to the funny little thing. So he put her up at the table, opened the great dictionary she brought, and gave her a paper and a pencil, and she scribbled away, turning a leaf now and then, and passing her little fat finger down the page, as if finding a word so soberly that I nearly betrayed myself by a laugh, while Mr. Bear stood stroking her pretty hair with a fatherly look that made me think she must be his own, though she looked more French than German. Another knock and the appearance of two young ladies sent me back to my work, and there I virtuously remained through all the noise and gabble that went on next door. One of the girls kept laughing affectedly and saying, Now, Professor, in a coatish tone, and the other pronounced her German with an accent that must have made it hard for him to keep sober. Both seemed to try his patience sorely, for more than once I heard him say empathetically, No, no, it is not so. You have not attend to what I say and once there was a loud rap as if he struck the table with a book and followed it by a despairing exclamation, Prot! It all goes bad this day. Poor man, I pitied him, and when the girls were gone, took just one more peep to see if he survived it. He seemed to have thrown himself back in his chair, tired out, and sat there with his eyes shut till the clock struck two when he jumped up and put his books in his pocket as if ready for another lesson, and taking little Tina, who had fallen asleep on the sofa in his arms, he carried her quietly away. I fancied he'd had a hard life of it. Miss Kirky asked me if I wouldn't go down to the five o'clock dinner, and feeling a little bit homesick, I thought that I would just to see what sort of people were under the same roof with me. So I made myself respectable and tried to slip in behind Miss Kirky, but as she was short and I am tall, my efforts at concealment were rather a failure. She gave me a seat by her, and after my face cooled off, I plucked up the courage and looked about me. The long table was full, and everyone intent on getting their dinner. The gentlemen, especially who seemed to be eating on time, for they bolted in every sense of the word, vanishing as soon as they were done. 
There was the unusual assortment of young men, absorbed in themselves, young couples absorbed in each other, married ladies and their babies, and old gentlemen in politics. I don't think I shall care to have much to do with any of them, except one sweet-faced maiden lady who looked as if she had something in her. Cast away at the very bottom of the table was the professor, shouting answers to questions of a very inquisitive deaf old gentleman on one side and talking philosophy with a Frenchman on the other. If Amy had been here, she'd have turned her back on him forever, because, sad to relate, he had a great appetite and shoveled his dinner in the manner which would have horrified her ladyship. I didn't mind, for I like to see folks eat with relish, as Hannah says, and the poor man must have needed a deal of food after teaching idiots all day. As I went upstairs after dinner, two of the young men were settling their beavers before the hall mirror, and I heard one of them say low to the other, "'Who's the new party? Governess, or something of that sort?' What the deuce is she at our table for? Friend of the old ladies. Handsome head, but no style. Not a bit of it. Give us a light and come on. I felt angry at first, and then I didn't care, for the governess is as good as a clerk. I've got sense if I haven't style, which is more than, uh, than some people have, judging from the remarks of the elegant beings who chattered away, smoking like bad chimneys. I hate ordinary people. Thursday. Yesterday was a quiet day spent in teaching and sewing and writing in my little room, which is very cozy with a light and a fire. I picked up a few bits of news and was introduced to the professor. It seems that Tina is the child of the Frenchwoman who does the fine ironing in the laundry here. The little thing has lost her heart to Miss Bear and follows him about the house like a dog whenever he's home, which delights him, as he is very fond of children, though a bachelor. Kitty and Minnie Kirky likewise regard him with affection and tell all sorts of stories about the plays he invents and the presents he brings and the splendid tales he tells. The young men quiz him, it seems, call him Old Fitz, Lagerbeer, Ursa Major, and make all manner of jokes on his name. But he enjoys it like a boy, Mrs. K says, and takes it so good-naturedly that they all like him in spite of his odd ways. The maiden lady is Miss Norton, rich and cultivated and kind. She spoke to me at dinner today, for I went to the table again. It's such fun to watch people, and asked me to come and see her at her room. She has fine books and pictures, knows interesting persons, and seems friendly, so I shall make myself agreeable, for I do want to get into good society, only it isn't the same sort that Amy likes. I was in the parlor last evening when Mr. Bear came in with some newspapers for Mrs. Kirky. She wasn't there, but Minnie, who was a little old woman, introduced me very prettily. This is Mama's friend, Miss March. Yes, and she's jolly and we like her lots, added Kitty, who is an infant terrible. We both bowed and then we laughed for the prim introduction and the blunt addition were rather a comical contrast. Ah, yes, I hear these naughty ones go to vex you, Miss March. If so, again, call me and I come, he said, with a threatening frown that delighted the little wretches. I promised I would, and he departed, but it seemed as if I was doomed to see a good deal of him, for today, as I passed his door on my way out by accident, I knocked against it with my umbrella. It flew open, and there he stood in his dressing gown, with a big blue sock in one hand and a darning needle in the other. He didn't seem at all ashamed of it, for when I explained and hurried on, he waved his hand, sock and all, saying in his loud, cheerful way, you have a fine day to make your walk. Bon voyage, mademoiselle. I laughed all the way down the stairs, but it was a little pathetic also to think of the poor man having to mend his own clothes. The German gentleman embroiderer I know, but darning hose is another thing, and not so pretty. Saturday. Nothing has happened to write about except to call on Miss Norton, who has a room full of lovely things, and who is very charming, for she showed me all her treasures and asked me if I would sometimes go with her to lectures and concerts as her escort if I enjoyed them. She put it as a favor, but I'm sure Miss Kirky has told her about us, and she does it out of kindness to me. I am proud as Lucifer, but such favors from such people don't burden me, and I accepted gratefully. When I got back to the nursery, there was such an uproar in the parlor that I looked in, and there was Mr. Bear down on his hands and knees, with Teen on his back, Kitty leading him with a jump rope, and Minnie feeding two small boys seed cakes as they roared and ramped in cages built of chairs. We're playing nagerie, explained Kitty. Dis my elephant, added Tina, holding on by the professor's hair. Mama always allows us to do what we like Saturday afternoon when France and Emil come, don't she, Mr. Bear, said Minnie. The elephant sat up, looking as much in earnest as any of them, and said soberly to me, I give you my word, it is so. If we make too much noise, you shall say hush to us, and we'll go more softly. 
I promised to do so, but left the door open and enjoyed the fun as much as they did, for more glorious frolic I have never witnessed. They played tag and soldiers and danced and sung, and when it began to grow dark, they all piled on the sofa about the professor while he told charming fairy tale stories of storks on the chimney tops and little kobolds who ride the snowflakes as they fall. I wished Americans were as simple and natural as Germans, don't you? I'm so fond of writing, I should go spinning on forever if motives of economy didn't stop me. For though I've used thin paper and written fine, it's terrible to think of stamps that long, this long letter will need. Pray forward Amy's as soon as you can spare them. My small news will sound very flat after her splendors, but you will like them. I know. Is Teddy studying so hard that he can't find time to write his friends? Take good care of him for me, Beth, and tell me all about the babies and give heaps of love to everyone from your beautiful, faithful Joe. P.S. On reading over my letter, it strikes me as rather berry, but I'm always interested in odd people and I really had nothing else to write about. Bless you. December. My precious Betsy. As this is to be a scribble-scrabble letter, I direct it to you, for it may amuse you and give you some idea of my goings-on, for though quiet, they are rather amusing, for which, oh, be joyful. After what Amy would call a herculean effort in the way of mental and moral agriculture, my young ideas began to shoot and my little twigs to bend as I could wish. They are not so interesting to me as Tina and the boys, but I do my duty by them, and they are fond of me. France and Emile are jolly little lads, quite after my own heart, for the mixture of German and American spirit in them produces a constant state of effervescence. Saturday afternoons are riotous times, whether spent in the house or out. For pleasant days, they all go for a walk, like a seminary, with the professor and myself to keep order, and then such fun. We are very good friends now, and I've begun to take lessons. I really couldn't help it, and it all came about in such a funny way that I must tell you, to begin at the beginning, Mrs. Kirky called me one day as I passed Mr. Bear's room, where she was rummaging. Did you ever see such a den, my dear? Just come and help me put these books to rights, for I've turned everything upside down trying to discover what he has done with the six new handkerchiefs I gave him not long ago. I went in, and while we worked, I looked about, for it was a den to be sure. Books and papers everywhere, a broken meerschaum and an old flute over the mantelpiece, as if done with. A ragged bird without any tail chirped on one window seat, and a box of white mice adorned the other. Half-finished boats and bits of string lay among the man manuscripts. Dirty little boots stood drying before the fire. Traces of dearly beloved boys, from whom he makes a slave of himself, were all to be seen all over the room. After a grand rummage, three of the missing articles were found. One over the birdcage, one covered with ink, and a third burnt brown, having been used as a holder. Such a man, laughed good-natured Mrs. K, as she put the relics in a rag bag. I suppose the others are torn up to rig ships, bandage cuts and fingers, or make little kite tails. It's dreadful, but I can't scold him. He's so absent-minded and good-natured. He lets those boys ride over him roughshod. I agreed to do his washing and mending, but he forgets to give out his things, and I forget to look over them, so he comes to a sad pass sometimes." Let me mend them, I said. I don't mind, and he needn't know. I'd like to. He's so kind to me about bringing my letters and lending me books. So I have got his things in order and knit heels into two pairs of socks, for they were boggled out of the shape with his queer darns. Nothing was said, and I hoped he wouldn't find out. But one day last week he caught me at it. Hearing the lessons he gives to others has interested and amused me so much that I took a fancy to learn. Tina runs in and out, leaving the door open, and I can hear. I had been sitting near the door, finishing off the last sock and trying to understand what he said to the new scholar, who was as stupid as I am. The girl had gone, and I thought he had also. It was so still, and I was busily gabbling over a verb and rocking to and fro in the most absurd way, when a little crow made me look up, and there was Mr. Bear, looking and laughing quietly while he made signs to Tina not to betray him. So, he said, as I stopped and stared like a goose, you peep at me, I peep at you, and that is not bad, but I see I am not pleasanting when I say, have you a wish for German? Yes, but are you too busy? I am too stupid to learn, I blundered out, as red as a beet. Prut, we will make the time, and we will fail not to find the sense. At evening I shall gift a little lesson with much gladness, for like you, Miss March, I have this debt to pay, and he pointed to my work. Yes, they say to one another, these so kind ladies. 
He is a stupid old fellow. He will not see what we do. He will never observe that his sock heels go not in holes anymore. He will think his buttons grew up new ones when they fall and believe that strings make their cells. Ah, but I have an eye and I see much. I have a heart and I feel the thanks for this. Come, a little lesson now and then or no more good fairy works for me and mine. Of course, I couldn't say anything after that, and as it really is a splendid opportunity, I made the bargain and we began. I took four lessons, and then I stuck fast in a grammatical bog. The professor was very patient with me, but it must have been torment for him, and now and then he'd look at me with such an expression of mild despair that it was a toss-up with me whether to laugh or to cry. I tried both ways, and when it came to a sniff of other mortification and woe, he just threw the grammar to the floor and marched out of the room. I felt myself disgraced and deserted forever, but didn't blame him a particle, and was scrambling my papers together, meaning to rush upstairs and shake myself hard, when he came in as brisk and beaming as if I'd covered my name with glory. Now we shall try a new way. You and I will read these pleasant little marchants together and dig no more in that dry book that goes on in the corner for making us trouble. He spoke so kindly and opened Hans Andersen's fairy tales so invitingly before me that I was more ashamed than ever and went at my lesson in a neck-or-nothing style that seemed to amuse him immensely. I forgot my bashfulness and pegged away, no other word will express it, with all my might tumbling over long words pronouncing according to the inspiration of the minute and doing my very best. When I finished reading my first page and stopped for breath, he clapped his hands and cried out in his hearty way, Das is gut. Now will go well. My turn. I do him in German. Give me your ear. And away he went, rumbling out the words with his strong voice and a relish which was, which was good to see as well as hear. Fortunately, the story was Constant Ten Soldier, which is droll, you know, so I could laugh, and I did, though I didn't understand half he read, for I couldn't help it. He was so earnest, I so excited, and the whole thing so comical. After that, we got on better, and now I read my lessons pretty well, for this way of studying suits me, and I can see that the grammar gets tucked into the tales and poetry as one gives pills and jelly. I like it very much, and he don't seem to tire of it yet, which is a good, which is good for him, isn't it? I mean, to give him something on Christmas, for I don't dare offer money. Tell me something nice, Marmy. I'm glad Laurie seems to be so happy and busy that he has given up smoking and lets his hair grow. You see, Beth manages him better than I did. I'm not jealous, dear, so do your best, only don't make a saint of him. I'm afraid I couldn't like him without a spice of human naughtiness. Read him bits of my letters. I haven't time to write much, and that will do just as well. Thank heaven Beth continues so comfortably. January. A happy new year to all of you, my dearest family, which of course includes Mr. L and a young man by the name of Teddy. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your Christmas bundle, for I didn't get it till night and had given up hoping. Your letter came in the morning, but you said nothing about a parcel, meaning it for a surprise, so I was disappointed, for I'd had kind of a feeling that you wouldn't forget me. I felt a little low in my mind as I sat up in my room after tea, and when the big, muddy, battered-looking bundle was brought to me, I just hugged it and pranced. It was so homey and refreshing that I sat down on the floor and read and looked and eat and laughed and cried in my usual absurd way. The things were just what I wanted and all the better for being made instead of bought. Beth's new ink bib was capitable, and Hannah's box of hard gingerbread was, will be a treasure. I'll be sure to wear the nice flannels you sent, Marmy, and read carefully the books Father has marked. Thank you all heaps and heaps. Speaking of books, remind me that I am getting rich in that line, for on New Year's Day, Mr. Bear gave me a fine Shakespeare. It is one he values very much, and I often admired it set up in the place of honor in his German Bible, Plato, Homer, and Milton, so you may imagine how I felt when he brought it down without its cover and showed me my name on it, from my friend Frederick Bear. You say often you wish a library here. I'll gift you one, for between these lids, he meant covers, is many books in one. Read him well, and he will help you much, for the study of character in this book will help you to read it in the world and paint it with your pen. I thanked him as well as I could and talked now about my library as if I had a hundred books. I never knew how much there was in Shakespeare before, but then I never had a bear to explain it to me. Now don't laugh at this horrid name. It isn't pronounced either bear or beer, as people will say, but something between the two, as only Germans can give it. 
I'm glad you both like what I tell you about him and hope you will know him someday. Mother would admire his warm heart, father his wise head. I admire both and feel rich in my new friend, Frederick Bear. Not having much money or knowing what he'd like, I got several little things and put them about the room where he would find them unexpectedly. They were useful, pretty, or funny. A new standish on his table, a little vase for his flower, he always has one, or a bit of green in the glass to keep him fresh, he says, and a holder for his blowers so he needn't burn up with what Amy calls matures. I made it like those Beth invented, a big butterfly with a fat body and, a black, and black yellow wings, worsted feelers, and bead eyes. It took his fancy immensely, and he put it on his mantelpiece as an article of virtue, so it rather is a failure after all. Poor as he is, he didn't forget a servant or a child in the house, and not a soul here from the French laundry woman to Miss Norton forgot him. I was so glad of that. They got up a masquerade and had a gay time New Year's Eve. I didn't mean to go down having no dress, but at the last minute Miss Kirky remembered some old brocades and Miss Norton lent me some lace and feathers, and so I rigged up as Miss Malprop and sailed in with the mask on. No one knew me, for I disguised my voice, and no one dreamed of the silent haughty Miss March, for they think I am very stiff and cool, most of them, and so I am to whippersnappers, could dance." and dress and burst out into a nice derangement of epitaphs like an allegory on the banks of the Nile. I enjoyed it very much, and when we were unmasked, it was fun to see them stare at me. I heard one of the young men tell another that he knew I'd been an actress. In fact, he thought he remembered seeing me in one of the minor theaters. Meg will relish that joke. Mr. Bear was Nick Bottoms, and Tina was Titania, a perfect little fairy in his arms. To see them dance was quite a landscape, to use a teddyism. I had a very happy New Year, after all, and when I thought it was over in my room, I felt as if I was getting on a little in spite of my many failures, for I'm cheerful all the time now, work with a will, and take more interest in other people than I used to, which is satisfactory. Bless you all, ever your loving, Joe. That brings us to the end of our podcast today. I hope you will join me next time as we continue the story of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I wish you all a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. This is Miss Kate signing off and may all your rainy days include a rainbow.